Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret take a look at the second tumultuous year of the pandemic. If 2020 was the year of COVID-19, 2021 was the year of the vaccine, the dramatic achievement of its development and deployment, a first sense that things might be rounding a corner. Then the arrival of Delta and the Omicron variants and how that has dramatically changed the landscape. We revisit some of our memorable guests from the past year, from renowned virologist and vaccine expert, Dr. Paul Offit, to epidemiologist Michael Osterholm, to CDC Director Michelle Walensky, NIH Director Francis Collins. The pandemic wasn't the only story to tell. Climate change moved to the front burner and women's reproductive health fell under serious threat. And still, the pandemic rages on. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned to our look back at 2021 here on Conversations on Healthcare. Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, another pandemic year and what a year it was. Still, we are far done from this experience. COVID-19 really has shocked the world into submission in 2020. And 2021 taught us the meaning of perseverance and patience and trust in our scientific community. The year began with the promise of a remarkable vaccine for the coronavirus. Well, that's right, Mark. 2021, even the last weeks of 2020 were a hopeful note. We had the rapid development and now deployment of the mRNA vaccine. It felt like the first real sign that there might be an end game for this pandemic. But the science needed some explaining back then, and, and the country needed that. We had vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit join us just to do that. There are a lot of rumors circulating around the new vaccine. Uh, and you'll remember there were concerns that would alter people's DNA. And he came on the show and clearly dispelled that myth. The messenger RNA is in this little lipid droplet, which is then taken up into the cell in the cytoplasm. In order for it to, to enter the nucleus, it needs to get past the nuclear membrane, which means it needs, a, it needs an access signal, which it doesn't have. Therefore, it actually cannot possibly enter the nucleus. Even if it entered the nucleus, it's, it's RNA, it's not DNA. It would have to be reverse transcribed to be RNA. Even if it was reverse transcribed to, to, to DNA, it would have to be integrated into the DNA, which requires an enzyme called integrase, which it also doesn't have. It's not like the chances that it could affect our DNA are small. The chances that it could affect our DNA is zero. You are more likely to develop X-ray vision after getting this vaccine <laughs> than having your DNA altered. And that early excitement around the vaccine I think it's fair to say we experienced it ourselves here at the health center. We had our whole team of folks working at four mass vaccination sites, serving the whole state of Connecticut, more than a half a million vaccines into people's arms. And we were, I think, driven by the same passion that we have that healthcare should be available to everyone. And our real focus in on trying to bring this pandemic to an end, but we're also motivated by what scientists were telling us Back in February, renowned virus scientist, Dr. William Hazeltine, warned that COVID was a shapeshifter, that the coronavirus mutates, and uh, that variants were a real threat. Now that we know, we're starting to look, and the more we look, the more we find. And it isn't the same kind of changes in one part of the world or another. We're starting to find 
new variants that don't look very much like any other variant. The California variant that just popped up is not like the South Africa and the UK. People say it's going to be a race between vaccine, public health measures, tamp this down, put it in a bottle. But you ask me, are these going to escape vaccines? The answer is the UK virus does so weakly. The South African and Brazilian viruses do it pretty well, with a caveat. I am going to predict that as the antibody concentrations wane, those differences between the ability to protect the variant is going to become greater and greater and greater, to the point where you'll have no protection at all. And I think that because these variants are reinfecting the same people that were already infected, where 76% of people had already been infected. There's a brand new wave of infection. We had uh, another uh, amazing epidemiologist join us on the show in March, Dr. Michael Osterholm, who I think the country got to know very well during the pandemic as a reliable expert, you know, spoke often on the media, also served on President Biden's COVID advisory team. And he warned us that another surge was coming and it was coming due to the new variants, uh, even though vaccinations were rolling out and we're having a good response around the country. And of course, it turned out that he was absolutely right. If you want to find out what is likely to happen here in the United States, just look at Europe. Germany just put in place a new major lockdown initiative just because of the challenges there. And I can go through country by country. And where this B117 variant has taken off, uh, the case numbers have surged substantially. Remember in the United States, even with everyone who's been previously infected and with even the amount of vaccine we've rolled out, we still have roughly 50 to 55% of the population unprotected. So uh, for all the pain, suffering, deaths, and cases we've had in the past year, we still have at least an equal amount, if not more, of people who are still vulnerable to this virus. So we have to take it very seriously. Well, one thing that happened in the new year, Margaret, was we had a new administration. The Biden administration took the task of vaccinating all Americans very seriously, mobilizing an enormous, you might well say a Herculean effort. Uh, his White House vaccination chief, Bashara Shuker, joined us in April, talking about the dramatic uptick in vaccine rates under the Biden team uh, in just a few weeks from when they took over. 11 weeks ago, uh, the U.S. was averaging less than 1 million vaccinations per day. Our current seven-day average is over 3 million vaccinations per day. And this weekend, we've reported for the very first time ever, 4 million shots reported administered in wow. one day. And for people 65 and older, where we know 80% of the deaths from COVID is happening, more than 75% of people 65 and older have had at least one shot of the vaccine. That's up from 8% 11 weeks ago. And in the middle of all that effort, Mark, you know, the United States, the place where much of the basic science and R&D for these vaccines have been done, had a new epidemic brewing that was really different than anything I have uh, seen in my long career. And that was an epidemic of disinformation. And that epidemic led to a lot of resistance to the vaccine in pockets across the country. We had former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden join us in May. He talked about his work at the global health entity, Vital Strategies. They're actually researching not just basic science, but an in-depth analysis into what was leading to so much resistance. And it, it did appear to be particularly among conservative voters. But with the, the group of uh, Trump voters that Frank Luntz and the De Beaumont Foundation put together, it was really interesting to hear 
the extent to which they feel so alienated from uh, the health, the, the political system. They didn't want to hear about vaccines from any politician, not even from President Trump, of whom they think very highly. They want to hear about it from doctors. And there were certain messages that really resonated with them. There's a lot of concern about vaccines. People think I'm putting this foreign substance into my body. And why was it developed so quickly? Mm -hmm. So there were some messages that really did make a difference. One of them was that if you get the virus, it's going to spread all over your body in billions of copies for a week or 10 days. If you get the vaccine, it'll be in your body for a day or so, and then it'll be gone. It will save your body the trouble of getting infected to learn how to fight the virus. We also had to clarify that the mRNA vaccines were not rushed to the market. They moved quickly, but not rushed. This is 20 years right. of research. Um, it's also really important to, to make the point that nearly every doctor who gets offered the vaccine takes it. And this made a big impact on them because mm -hmm. they trust their doctors. You know, Margaret, we've had so many CDC directors on and uh, they've really informed us and our listeners over the years. And uh, we have the new CDC director join us just a few weeks later, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, and she shared her thoughts on the effectiveness of the vaccine against the first wave of COVID, as well as the next wave that was being driven by the variants. And even then in early spring, they were laying the groundwork for the possible need for a booster. So among the things that we're looking at, not just in the trial, but really in the real world studies as well, is what happens to our immunity? Does it wane over time? Mm -hmm. um, I want to be very clear to people. When we talk about boosters, that doesn't mean you're not protected now because that has caused some confusion. The question is not, do we need you know, a third today? You are, if you get your two doses, you're protected now. What we want to see is if in a year from now, you will continue to be uh -huh. protected. So we're looking at those data, not just in the trial, but in clinical studies as well. Where we're worried most about that to start is among the population that got vaccinated first, of course, and that's our long-term care facilities where people might not have had a robust immune right. response to right. start. So we really want to make sure that they're going to maintain protection. You know, at the same time, and I'm going to go back to 2020 uh, for a moment, the, the country was really gripped by, once again, uh, the revealing of just what tremendous health disparities exist in our country and when it comes to really caring in an equitable uh, and quality way for racial and ethnic minority groups. Uh, and we saw this as the mortality and morbidity rates made obvious that uh, minority groups, people of color, were more likely to get sick from COVID. They were more likely to die from COVID. And we had our guest, Dr. Elena Rios, president of the National Hispanic Medical Association on uh, and she said, you know, this pandemic just exposed what was already there, challenges that these communities have historically faced and were continuing to face during the COVID pandemic. Very powerful. Overall, Hispanics and, and other vulnerable communities have really had, uh, you know, twice as many uh, deaths than the white population. And a, a lot of that is because of the underlying conditions that Hispanics who are mostly uh, lower income, working class people uh, known as essential workers have lots of underlying conditions like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and cancers and, and uh, also are, are living in multi-generational housing uh, mm -hmm. with uh, sm in small business, working in small businesses or in the service industry or in the agriculture business or meat packing plants, et cetera, where they've lost jobs and are really feeling the, the impact 
the economic impact of COVID-19, as well as the, the physical and emotional impact of this horrible pandemic. Yeah, she really was a powerful voice and really shined a light on the health disparities and inequities that exist out there. And we were fortunate to have a former Congressman uh, Patrick Kennedy on, who's a renowned mental health advocate, told us about the isolation and fear and quarantines. Margaret, we saw this in our own settings, our school-based health centers, the impact that uh, COVID, the isolation that it was creating, in, in not only on the mental health, but addiction and increased overdoses and suicides. And Patrick uh, told us this was just the kind of glaring spotlight needed to spur change in how we treat mental illness and addiction in this country. And I, hopefully that will be an impetus for the type of change that's needed. We as a nation have just really never wrapped our arms around how much of an elephant this is in our nation's living room. So I think that both on a personal level and on a societal level, we're ready to have that conversation. And to your point, the indicators are off the charts. I mean, uh, we're losing twice as many people as we lost during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. Right. And we're spending one fifth the amount of money as we dedicated to fight HIV AIDS. So we may think because of all the headlines that we're actually tackling mental health and addiction. And I can tell you, as a member of many who are on the front lines, we haven't barely scratched the surface of tackling this illness. And it's all seen through the prism of the money. If you really want to know where someone's priorities follow the money and the money has not come into this space, we still treat mental health and addiction as a, as a grant. SAMHSA is the leading agency, but it, it reflects the fact that insurance still does not reimburse for mental illness and addiction in the same way that it reimburses for medical and surgical care as is required under federal law. I mean, if this were any other illness, we would have been doing a lot more by now. We also uh, welcome back Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, to the show. Now there's somebody who the country got to know very well. He also endured quite a bit of political pushback from certain circles, but he always stays focused on uh, the message and getting clear information out to people. And his message was, we need to vaccinate the people of the United States and we need to vaccinate the people of the world. Getting back to the issue is that a global pandemic requires a global response is really important because as you are correctly saying, if we get the level of infection very low and we get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated in the United States and a large proportion of the rest of the world, particularly in the lower and middle income countries, are not vaccinated, that is a surefire way to generate additional new variants. And we may not be so lucky the next time around that the variant that emerges is one that our vaccine is able to cover. It may be that it eludes the protection of the vaccine, which means we've got to get the rest of the world vaccinated. Just as we seem to be turning the corner with increased vaccinations, at least in the United States, we saw the second wave. The Delta variant rolled over our shores in 2021 and it swiftly became the dominant strain, filling up hospitals and really putting unbelievable pressure on state leaders across the country. We were fortunate to have Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir with us. We had his dad with us when he was governor and who I think we all know here in the country and our thoughts and prayers are with uh, his entire 
state as they're dealing and grappling with this, uh, the after effects of that devastating tornado hit by a storm of another kind this summer, a killer surge in COVID cases. Uh, and the harsh political opposition to vaccines and masking requirements, I think Kentucky is one of those bellwether states in terms of, of uh, the challenges that the country faces in educating people. And I think uh, Governor Bashir is a, is a great voice and advocate. Our state and, and the South, what'll be the entire United States is on fire with the Delta variant. Uh, now more than ever, we've got to make the right decisions guided by public health uh, to save lives. And I'll also say, and we can talk about it, our hospitals are bursting at the seams. We have one that has a disaster plan in effect, the disaster plan. People are being treated in their cars outside of them. So we're hmm. calling in the National Guard to help. Uh, we're, we're trying to take over testing for some of them to free up staff. And we've asked FEMA for help. So. This is a time when, when we need strong leadership, and I hope the legislature will, will step up and make the right decisions. One of uh, the highlights of the past year, in terms of our guests for me, Mark, is when we had uh, NIH Director Dr. Francis Collins, certainly a legend uh, in his time, one of our eminent senior people, such a compassionate scientist, uh, joined us to make a case, you know, shedding a little bright light on the remarkable science that's been achieved during this crisis. And as he pointed out, that, that's historically been true uh, for big advances in science and technology being precipitated by a crisis. And it will pave uh, the way for many potential breakthroughs that will help humanity. But he was really worried as he uh, was coming to the end of his tenure about how divided our country was in this ongoing war on science, which got in the way of everything from testing to precautionary measures to really getting the vaccine into all communities around the country. The current polarization of our country about almost everything has played out in a circumstance where it really has been destructive. Your political party really shouldn't be the main reason for you to have a view about vaccines or mask mandates, but that's turned out to be the case. And so things that really should be based upon evidence and the truth of what we actually know get colored over. And that is further com made complex uh, by social media and the way in which misinformation spreads oftentimes more quickly than the truth. I do worry about that, not just about what it's done to COVID-19, but about the future of our country. If we're in a circumstance where truth has somehow stopped having the same purchase that it should on our decision-making and other things like politics, conspiracies, and just random opinions uh, seem capable oftentimes of pushing truth aside. That is not a good place uh, for the most technological nation on the planet to be because the culture wars that are now so much affecting COVID-19 are killing people. Uh, we've lost 600,000 people. Most would estimate that if we'd had a better management of our public health circumstances based on evidence, uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of those lives could have been spared. This is really serious. Well, we are gonna miss him, Margaret, though I think he's going to go back to his lab uh, the end of December. Uh, he's not retiring. Know, he's not retiring. He, he's not. But, uh, you know, uh, I think having all of these various scientists on, we really got to see a good, uh, we had a window into the uh, effectiveness of this mRNA platform. Now, of course, it's new to us, but it's been around for 15 or 20 years. It's something in our toolkit that we 
might have other types of impact in cancers or autoimmune diseases it's being tested. Former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, joined us to talk about that platform, but also some areas of concern, warning that we're not an, uh, enough stockpiles of the right kind of medicines, including new emerging therapeutics for COVID, uh, some of which are really showing some uh, promise. We've stockpiled somewhere between 50 to 80 million doses of flu medicines in preparation for a feared pandemic flu. So we procured 1.7 million doses of this coronavirus drug in the setting of a raging coronavirus pandemic. And we've stockpiled upwards of 80 million doses of a flu drug for, you know, a flu pandemic that we fear but hasn't arrived yet. And so there's sort of a, a mismatch between, you know, what we what we need in the setting of this pandemic and what we ultimately procured. There's probably things we could have done much earlier to ramp up manufacturing of the, this drug to have more available now, but it's too late. Um, and it just it sort of underscores the lack of preparation. This is another point I get back to in the book, not having the reserve capacity to scale the production of some of the therapeutics and countermeasures that you're going to need in the setting pandemic. We just don't have available capacity in this country that's ready to go. And lest we uh, only focus on COVID and uh, the pandemic at hand, there are other crises happening against the backdrop of the pandemic of COVID, Mark. We had our longtime climate change activist, Bill McKibben, join us uh, to talk about the UN's climate summit in Scotland and the hopes that he had for the Biden administration's Build Back Better legislation, which he said had the most aggressive measures yet to address the climate crisis. Even when we signed the Paris Climate Accords, we knew, and the President Obama said at the time, that it wasn't strong enough. Even if we met all the promises, the temperature would still rise about three degrees Celsius, so five, six degrees Fahrenheit, which is too much. We can't deal with that. And that's why everybody is aimed at strengthening the ambition of countries. And the crucial meeting is in November in Glasgow, the most important climate meeting, at least since Paris. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, is now our climate envoy, demonstrating, I think, how seriously the Biden administration has taken this. And he needs to be able to go to Glasgow to negotiate with something in his pocket. That something is that $3.5 trillion bill before the U.S. Senate. If it passes, then he'll be able to say with a straight face, the U.S. has begun to commit serious resources to this fight. China, India, we need you to move up yours. If he goes there with nothing in his pocket, then that's not going to be a productive meeting. Well, it's, it's so important. The work, the international gathering that was held was so important. As you said, Margaret, there's so many problems that we're facing all at once. And certainly a very important one is women's reproductive rights are undergoing really an enormous threat. The greatest threat, I think, from the passage of Roe versus Wade 50 years ago. And there are several restricted abortion laws uh, landed before the Supreme Court. Uh, I think we saw recently the Supreme Court sort of punted on that. But we got an opportunity to sit down and hear from Planned Parenthood President Alexis McGill-Johnson, who joined us to talk about what was at stake. SB 8 is a uh, six-week blatantly unconstitutional ban against abortion. Normally, when you have an unconstitutional law, you, you are able to uh, appeal um, this law, sue the, um, sue the, the state uh, lawmakers who put it into place. Uh, instead, what Texas has done is created a provision where the state actually cannot enforce the law uh, that they created uh, and instead empowers 
average citizens, uh, citizens in any state, even outside of Texas, to enforce uh, a, the law um, with what's called been called a, a bounty hunting provision. And her concerns were not unwarranted. The high court has already failed to block the Texas law banning abortions after six weeks and has allowed vigilante citizens to go after abortion providers. These are troubling times indeed for women's health and reproductive freedoms. And we also had a visit with Dr. Eric Topol, has really become a voice of reason throughout the pandemic. And he helped us to understand the threat that was posed by the new Omicron variant. I think the main property of Omicron that is disturbing and, and, and very concerning is that it has marked immune evasion, that it, it gets, it works around our uh, recognition from the prior uh, virus versions and from our vaccine immunity to some degree, okay? And so that gives it uh, an enhanced ability to spread and that's what we're seeing, of course, and a lot more to come. He is all about the future. And I think as we look back at the past two pandemic years, uh, I'm reminded again and again of how many brilliant minds are using their talents to improve healthcare. You know, we started off with thanking the healthcare heroes, and we want to thank our staff. We want to thank everybody who's on the front line. And the front lines include the schools, include the folks who are serving us at restaurants. And really, uh, amid all these challenging stories, there's a need to really focus in on the positive and the opportunities that present themselves even in this difficult time. Well, I'll count as one of those positives that the Affordable Care Act has remained intact. Uh, we still remember the December day when that passed uh, Congress and what an exciting time that was more than 10 years ago. Also, uh, much promise in the president's Build Back Better initiative, which seeks to address challenges that impact America's health and that have been on uh, the progressive agenda for a long time to address child poverty, uh, the cost of prescription medications, and of course, climate change. The bill has stalled in Congress and action has been pushed into the new year, but we are hopeful as we go into the new year that we'll see some progress on this legislation, which would do much to address inequity in this country. We know that if we can address uh, inequity, we address some of the fundamental causes of poor health. Uh, yet we still have facing us right now uh, the third wave of Omicron rolling over our shores, and it will really we'll be looking to the remarkable uh, science and scientists. There's a dramatic increase around the globe in research, and we've had so many people who've been talking about this global network, right? Uh, Dr. Gallo and uh, Dr. Topol and Dr. Hazeltine and others have been really talking about uh, this collaboration that's going around and how important it is. And, but I think people are realizing that we need to be working together and the opportunities the mRNA vaccine technology will provide. We'll, we'll be watching as this story continues to unfold in 2022. And you can expect to see some of the most important people in health policy and innovation technology and global health. Join us here on Conversations in Healthcare to talk about it. And we look forward to as happy and healthy a conclusion to this year and into the next as we can possibly have. But in the meantime, to all of our listeners and viewers, we hope you stay healthy, take care of yourselves, get vaccinated, and a happy new year from all of us here at Conversations on Healthcare. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University. 
Streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.